Welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Today, our guest is Professor Alexander Knish, who is a professor of Islamic studies at the University of Michigan, Michigan in Ann Arbor. He received his PhD from the Institute of Oriental Studies, the Soviet Academy of Sciences, uh, Leningrad, currently St. Petersburg. He also leads a research team of Russian scholars and graduate students at the St. Petersburg University in St. Petersburg, Russia. He has published in both Russian and English on Islamic mysticism in the form of many monographs, source books, translations, and edited volumes, which include Ibn Arabi in the Later Islamic Tradition, The Making of a Polemical Image in Medieval Islam from uh, Sunni Press in 1998, um, Islamic Mysticism, A Short History from Brill in 2000, Dreams and Visions in Islamic Societies, co-edited with Özgen Felek, uh, Sunni Press uh, 2012, and then the subject of today's interview Sufism, A New History of Islamic Mysticism, um, out from Princeton University Press in 2017. Welcome to New Books. So we normally start with a biographical question. Uh, what's your intellectual biography? How did you come to the study of Islam? Okay, it was by chance because I specialized in uh, Arabic literature, modern Arabic literature, when I was at Leningrad State University. Um, it was during the time of the Soviet Union, uh, very long ago. And I um, couldn't imagine I would be studying Sufism. I, I knew the name, I knew what it mean, meant, but um, eventually I ended up researching Sufism and becoming a specialist on Sufism uh, without any preconceived uh, kind of intention. Uh, so it was by chance that um, my supervisor asked me to focus on classical Sufism, and then on its major representative, Ibn al-Arabi, who was born in Al-Andalus in Islamic Spain in 1165 and died in 1240 in Damascus, where his tomb still stands. So how did this book specifically come about? I mean, it's subtitled A New History of Islamic Mysticism. Did it come about with your engagement of the field over many years? Yes, uh, as you can see uh, from my, or you already mentioned an earlier book with a similar title, Islamic Mysticism, A Short History, which was published in for the first time in hardcover um, in 2000, and then uh, a paperback edition appeared 10 years later in 2010. Uh, so that book... Um, was a general survey of Sufism that only touched upon um, briefly the modern development. So I thought that I should write a sequel to that book. And I started writing uh, this new book uh, on Sufism as a sequel that would focus on modern developments, on recent developments, especially on the confrontation between the Sufis and their opponents, primarily the so-called Salafis, uh, or let's call them fundamentalism as a shortcut, uh, fundamentalists putting them in quotation marks. So, um, but as I started to rethink um, my understanding of Sufism, uh, I decided to write a different book, uh, a book that would be topically focused, focused on the topics rather than on a uh, progression um, of certain events and people in time and space like the first one. So it's uh, um, my new understanding, say, um, more than 20 years um, of work uh, 
um, embodied in that new book. Um, and uh, the approach that I take is very different. It actually criticizes my er- er- own stereotype and stereotypes and preconceptions um, that were evident in the first iteration of my book on Sufism. Can you expand a bit more on that, sort of what were those stereotypes, um, what were those conceptions of Sufism, but also what are other conceptions of Sufism and the study of Islamic mysticism today that you're responding to? So I wanted this new book to be more theoretical. I would like also to point out that uh, the title was not mine. Uh, My original title was uh, Sufism Reimagined. Uh, I wanted to reimagine Sufism for myself and for my readers and share my reimagination of Sufis with my readers. But um, eventually, um, the publisher prevailed on me uh, to rename the book as uh, Sufism, A New History of Islamic Mysticism. It is new in its approach. Um, because I decided to focus on issues rather than, as I said, on history of uh, certain institutions, certain ideas. So, And also I um, decided to bring the present into my conversation uh, with the readers. So that's uh, the book. Um, uh, the book that appeared, that you that has just come out, I only have an advanced copy. I haven't received my author's copies yet, but they will soon be, the copies of my book will soon be in stores. It's a a very different book uh, from the first one because it is uh, uh, more theoretically, I believe, sophisticated, at least in my Mm -hmm. opinion, it is more sophisticated in terms of engagement of recent uh, theoretical tools offered to us by the humanities and the social sciences. It absolutely is. I think one thing that surprised me is you quote Hayden White on the very first page, I believe. Yeah, you quote uh, the content of the form. But one thing about your definition of Sufism that I really like is you lay it out in bullet points, um, and then you use this bullet-pointed definition of Sufism to structure your book. So you define Sufism as teachings and discourses, practices, um, community of intellectual and spiritual commitment that constitutes a source of identity and subjectivity, institutions, and then also leaders. Um, So this very tight definition of Sufism, and it's also very expansive and inclusive, and you say at many points in the book that you err towards the side of inclusion versus exclusion. Um, What definitions of Sufism present in the field were you responding to when you wrote this particular definition? Yeah, um, most uh, earliest studies of Sufism, uh, including my first book on Sufism, focus on uh, the history of ideas. Um, The history of practices are not as uh, represented. There are special books that focus exclusively on the institutions. For instance, the book by uh, Spencer Trimingham, Sufi Orders in Islam, um, and some other books that focus on regional uh, Sufi institutions in in North Africa, for instance, or in Egypt, uh, or in Syria. Uh, But there is no um, uh, overarching discussion of Sufism as a phenomenon, uh, as a meeting place um, of different imaginations. Uh, What fascinated me is the dynamic of the 
conceptualization of Sufism uh, by different actors, by Western scholars who had no uh, Sufi interests, personal interests, but who uh, were just academic scholars, or at least they presented themselves as such. There were also Western scholars who were um, clergymen who had their own approach to this subject, which was very often sympathetic, but sometimes also polemical. Then there are uh, uh, outsiders to Sufism, Muslim scholars, who mm, didn't necessarily share some ideas of Sufism, but studied it as as an object, uh, as an academic object. Then there are mm, colonial administrators who studied uh, Sufism because they wanted to know how to more effectively govern, um, control, manage the territories uh, under uh, their uh, jurisdiction. And there were amateurs who described um, Sufi practices. Um, They were travelers from the West uh, who visited Muslim countries, who described itinerant dervishes, Um, whom they thought were more or less monks, uh, Muslim monks. And finally, there were uh, textual scholars, scholars who studied uh, Sufism through texts exclusively without necessarily even seeing a single living Sufism. Sufi, uh, for instance, um, Reynold Nicholson probably never encountered Sufis, uh, but he uh, wrote very, uh, very popular and descriptions of Sufism, and also very academic uh, editions of Sufi texts. So, as you can see, uh, I, I studied Suf- started to study Sufism as a meeting place, uh, as an attraction of uh, for different types of thinkers, uh, and uh, how interest in Sufis brought them together. Insiders, outsiders, um, uh, semi-outsiders, semi-insiders, Western Sufis studying uh, Sufi tradition uh, in the Middle East, and uh, vice versa, Middle Eastern Sufis looking uh, at how Sufism development developed in uh, Western societies and not necessarily appreciating it. So that uh, was my general conceptual structure when I started the book. And as for definitions, of course, each group uh, that I just mentioned had its own definition of Sufism. Um, but the majority of, of them uh, focused primarily on the textual production of Sufis, especially Sufi poetry. Uh, others uh, focused on normative literature, so how Sufis wanted to be governed by the rules, uh, Sufi adab, uh, Sufi rules of proper behavior and good behavior, uh, moral ethical rules. And uh, uh, this um, textual study dominated the field of Sufi studies for many, many decades. I would say even for centuries, for one and a half century at least. Only recently, scholars, especially anthropologists, started to examine real-life Sufis, uh, and they examined them not as uh, outsiders, but very often 
uh, went native. They became part of a Sufi movement in the Middle East uh, to observe it more closely, intimately, studied it from within, sometimes becoming Sufis, sometimes uh, keeping their own um, convictions, religious uh, or academic or otherwise. One thing you do really well in the book is, and you've mentioned it um, in your last response, is you've bit, built this binary of the insider and the outsider, and then you decompose it sort of as you go along, um, sort of blurring that line, but also emphasizing how important it is that we acknowledge both groups. So um, could you sort of clarify a bit more the categories of insiders and outsiders, and again, sort of how their views towards Sufis can sort of blend? And I, I in particular want to ask if you think that these these understandings of Sufism can be harmonized or whether or not that's even a relevant question, particularly because you spend so much of the book focusing on issues of, I mean, you draw on the post-structuralist tradition in history and post-modernism in history, um, all these discussions of narratives and whether or not we imagine narratives. And the the word imagination runs uh, very heavily through the book, like a thread. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so um, all actors who studied Sufism up until now, they um, they exercised their imagination and relied on their cultural matrix and their um, preconceptions of culture and religion to to fashion some sort of Sufism. Uh, but at the same time, there was something in common um, among both insiders and outsiders. Um, the uh, insiders wanted to explain how their own tradition developed, uh, what stages it underwent. And, uh, for instance, they realized that at first Sufism was a very unstructured, uninstitutionalized movement of uh, great spiritual athletes, uh, uh, like heroes of piety and righteousness, who um, acted outside any um, institutional framework. But when they attracted followers, uh, the process of institutionalization began. Insiders realized that Sufis became more formal and, uh, and uh, and allowed less freedom for its followers in their choice of spiritual paths. For instance, if they chose a sheikh, they were supposed to stay with this sheikh, uh, sheikh meaning the spiritual teacher. They were supposed to stay with him uh, throughout their lives. Whereas they thought that, I mean, insiders again, that at the early stage, uh, Sufis uh, were free to abandon their teacher and move on to another one, to a greener pastures, quote unquote, and uh, and browse there outside the reach of that initial sheikh. Um, and uh, they understood the notion of institutionalization. In other words, they uh, were critically examining their own tradition. But this critical examination was also um, practiced by outside observers, who Muslim scholars who were not necessarily fully-fledged Sufis, for instance, Ibn Khaldun was 
both insider and outsider to Sufism. Uh, in fact, he was quite critical of many aspects of Sufism in his age, that is, in the 14th century of common era in the Maghrib and also in Egypt. So he wrote um, a history of Sufism um, uh, and also dis- included a discussion of Sufism in his uh, famous uh, Prolegomena, that is, the Introduction to History. Um, he discusses Sufism in other treatises as well, but these are the main texts. So in the case of Ibn Khaldun, who was not originally Sufi, Sufi uh, but at the same time was put in charge of a Sufi institution in Egypt, we find a very interesting dynamic of insider-outsider within the Muslim tradition. And uh, uh, Ibn Khaldun defies all the, my own categories of insider and outsider. But what I found very interesting that his ideas and the idea and the conceptualization of uh, Sufi history by other Sufis, um, Ibn Khaldun, as I said, was not fully-fledged Sufis, but there were also historians of Sufism who were fully-fledged Sufism, such as Ibn Abbad al-Rundi, who also lived in the 14th century, like uh, Ibn Khaldun, also in the Maghrib. He, he was critically assessing his own Sufi tradition from inside, and he arrives uh, basically at many of, of the ideas that uh, uh, were uh, voiced by Ibn Khaldun himself. Uh, so these are two out, insiders, outsiders within the Muslim tradition studying Sufism. And then come the Orientalists, the much reviled Orientalists, who actually do not introduce not anything new. They use the conceptual framework pro- already fashioned for them by um, Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Abbad al-Rundi, and other Muslims, Muslim scholars and also Sufis who tried to write a history of Sufism. But uh, when the Westerners took over, of course, they infused their conceptualizations of Sufism with their own, um, I, we call it biases, I would say cultural predilections, or um, they were programmed to see uh, Islam from outside, but they had to explain it to their audience. And uh, they uh, willy-nilly, they had to use categories that were extraneous to the Sufi tradition. But uh, um, many uh, contemporary postmodern scholars criticized them for using these extraneous foreign categories, such as monastic orders for Sufi Turok, or uh, the uh, Sufi uh, Sufi uh, recluses, Sufi monks. Uh, many people criticize them uh, for uh, scholars criticize um, Westerners for using these categories to. Um, uh, up to, to, to describe a Muslim phenomenon. But as I was reading deeper into uh, Western, uh, early Western discussion of Sufism, I realized that they had no choice, but if they wanted to convey the ideas and, uh, about Sufism 
to their audiences, they had to use the categories and terms that were familiar to those audience. Otherwise, their discourses would have fallen flat on their audience and uh, the audiences, and uh, um, they had to toe a very fine line between Christianizing, for instance, in the case of Christian scholars of Sufism, Christianizing Islam and uh, and uh, at the same time preserving its Islamic trappings and Islamic essence. So I found uh, some, as usual, some scholars are more talented, others less so. Some are more sophisticated, others less so. Uh, and therefore, the, the, the presentation of Sufism was very uneven and very often colored by the uh, personal background and uh, personal convictions and agendas of a given scholar. So generalizations in the case of the study of Sufism I found uh, dangerous. But what I found is that many uh, conscientious and uh, accurate um, and um, thorough Western scholars simply used the framework of Sufi history that was had already been prepared for them by uh, Muslim observers of Sufism, both insiders and outsiders. So one moment where I really appreciated the way you treated sort of the nuances of the historiography itself of this Orientalist tradition, to use that word, was where you talk about proto-Sufis, sort of um, you, you lay out a variety of different approaches to the origins of Sufism, um, particularly in regards to um, at two different points in the book the influence of Hellenic mysticism and asceticism on the emergence of Islamic asceticism. So I suppose my question is, how would you define the origins of Sufism? So I use the uh, term proto-Sufism because it uh, uh, has already been used um, by my predecessors. For instance, Niall Green, uh, who wrote uh, Sufism, a Global History, uh, and also Ahmed Kara Mustafa, they use this term. Um, what it uh, it means, it's simply there were individu individuals, uh, spiritual athletes of early Islam, such as Ibn al-Mubarak, Fudayl ibn Ayyad, um, uh, Maruf al-Karhi, um, and uh, many, many others um, uh, who... Um, Malik ibn Dinar and so on, uh, they were not part of a Sufi movement because the Sufi movement had not yet been formed. Uh, but then they later were appropriated by the Sufi tradition and uh, were made Sufis. They were reimagined as early Sufis. That's why the term proto-Sufis is helpful in that it shows that they were originally maybe even opposed to the notion of wearing wool, uh, which gave name to the Sufi movement. As you know, Sufism is the movement of wearers of wool, wool people. Um, but many early so-called Sufis or proto-Sufis, they were critical of the practice of wearing wool, seeing in it uh, a manifestation of Christian monasticism. Um, but some on the other hand, some other early um, proto-Sufis, they adopted this garment. So there was no unanimity over the value of 
wearing wool. All we know is that it always had always been in the Middle East a symbol of penitence, and that's something that unites most of the early ascetics mystics in Islam. So proto-Sufis are ascetics mystics um, of early Islam who were not part of any unified and institutionalized movement. They were like uh, beacons of piety who were later appropriated by uh, uh, com- composers or writers of the Sufi tradition, of, uh, of the Sufi normative literature, and uh, they were uh, reimagined as early Sufis. So this is the proto-Sufism. As for the Hellenistic and other influences, I would say that um, I investigate, for instance, uh, the ideas of early uh, church fathers uh, who often uh, were fascinated, uh, such as Origen, for instance, or... um, Pseudo Dionysius, the Areopagite, or um, even Saint Augustine, they were all fascinated by Hellenic um, legacy and Platonism in particular. We normally call it Neoplatonism because we attribute it to Plotinus uh, rather than uh, uh, Plato himself. But I would say the origins of these ideas are in Plato's philosophy later. Simply this emanationist um, doctrine was added to it by Plotinus, uh, who died in 270 Common Era. Um, so, uh, and early Christian thinkers, and including ascetically, mystically minded ones, they embraced uh uh, this ideas of uh, Hellenistic ideas, despite their pagan quote unquote origins, they realized that these ideas can be useful for to describe their own experiences of God, um, and in particular Christ, uh, and uh, they used uh, this uh, Hellenistic legacy to advance certain trends within uh, the Christian tradition. And Muslims did exactly the same. When they discovered Hellenic um, legacy, they were too attracted, uh, like their Christian predecessors, such as Oregon and uh, Clement of Alexandria and uh, others. Uh, they were attracted to it, and uh, but of course they had to reshape these ideas drastically so that they would not uh, be alien to the Muslim uh, intellectual universe. In other words, these ideas were thoroughly Islamicized as they had been Christianized before uh, and then taken on board and integrated into the uh, intellectual and spiritual life of the Muslim ummah, of the Muslim community. So that's that was my finding and I find I, I see no shame in Muslims um, benefiting from Hellenic legacy? Can we hold the church fathers um, uh, 
such as Origen and uh, um, other great uh, thinkers of early Christianity for being fa- for having been fascinated with uh, uh, this legacy. No, did it compromise the purity of Christianity, perhaps of the original Christian messages, but. Uh, Eventually, they became part and parcel of the Christian intellectual universe, uh, as manifested, for instance, in the works of Thomas Aquinas. And in the same way, Ibn Arabi, who was an older contemporary of uh, Thomas Aquinas, he took on board these ideas, but completely drastically reimagined them and uh, created a new system from the bricks for building blocks provided to him by the earlier tradition. So that's my vision of uh, the influences uh, and how Sufism appeared. I would also like to add a word about monastic Christianity. Eastern Christianity uh, was famous for its monastic movements. There were Nestorian monks uh, in Iraq. There were Christian monks um, um, of various denominations in Syria and in Egypt. Egypt was actually a home to one of the greatest representatives uh, of the uh, monastic Christianity, um, St. Anthony, for instance, and his followers. The first uh, monasteries appeared in Egypt uh, and also in Iraq and Syria later. So... Uh, I think that Islam underwent the same transition. It uh, uh, this uh, ascetically and mystically minded in- individuals um, eventually created their own uh, institutions, but whether they imitated the, the monks, the Christian monks, or not, we can only speculate. But uh, they were thinking along the same lines. I can either go into the desert and uh, um, bury myself in a cave, cultivate a certain very high vaulted spirituality, but it will die with me. When I die, it will die with me. But if I want to convey its greatness to others, I have to create uh, a community of like-minded individuals who would uh, then disseminate at least glimpses of that wisdom that I acquired in my conversations with God to others. So um, I think the imperatives of human existence just make people behave and think along the same lines. One thing I really enjoyed about the book was um, the way you talk about texts, because as you mentioned, there is this sort of divide in the field um, between and this divide has emerged recently, people who study texts and people who actually study Sufis. But one thing that sort of, I think, grounds everyone is the Quran. And you in particular spend a lovely portion of the book discussing the relationship with the Quran um, to Sufi exegetical works um, on the Quran itself. But I was wondering if we could orient the Quran as sort of a holy text within the greater tradition of Sufism. Sort of how would you orient it? Do you think there's just one orientation or perhaps are there multiple um, forms of discourse around the Quran and um, various Sufi traditions. As you know, Quran is all things to all people. It's available to everyone, uh, and everyone reads into the Quran his or her personal uh, views, agendas, uh, convictions, um, fascinations, aspirations, uh, frustrations, whatever. 
So the Sufis, def- uh, I begin my book by studying the Quranic uh, evidence that was used by ascet- early ascetic mystics or proto-Sufis. I already explained what it means um, to justify their uh, reclusive lifestyle, their devaluation of the world, uh, mundane affairs, uh, mundane uh, aspirations and hopes, and um, uh, elevating at the same time uh, the value of the world to come. So uh, the Quran provides ammunition uh, to the Sufis, and I show this how, because it very often it speaks um, derogatory uh, about the life in this world, that uh, this world is um, it's important as a stage to the next life, but still it's a bridge. You don't build much on the bridge, according to the famous saying of Hassan al-Basri, who is considered to be a proto-Sufi, uh, one of the major, actually, um, ascetics. So he said, don't build on this bridge, focus on the world to come, uh, because this world is transient and your um hopes uh, in this world will eventually be frustrated. You will never satisfy your needs in this world. But the world to come is so great, you should work uh, to achieve salvation and bliss in that other world. So, but definitely if we uh, abstract ourselves from the ascetic reading, ascetic mystical reading of the Quran that denigrates life in this world, uh, if we abstract ourselves, if we forget about these aspects of the Quranic message, we can focus on its legal aspect. Why the Quran is so concerned with regulating life in this world? Um, that would what the opponents uh, of uh, early ascetics mystics said. Uh, it means that uh, the Quran wanted Muslims to live a pious life in this world and provide very detailed guidelines for that which were supplemented by the prophetic hadith. So, uh, in other world, uh, in other word, uh, the opponents of Sufi, Sufism and ascetic mystics, uh, proto-Sufis, uh, found in the Quran also a lot of evidence against uh, uh, flight from this world, from its uh, withdrawal from its affairs. And eventually, it fell to later ascetics, mystic to find mystics to find a compromise: how to live in this world with all its imperatives, uh, economic, social uh, pressures, and at the same time remain with God. Eventually, they achieved, in my view, a successful balance um, in doing that. But it took them centuries to figure out how to live in the world while all, not becoming a captive of its uh, um, blandishments, of its um, attractions and uh, trimming, uh, trappings, um, glitter, all this glitter of this world uh, should not obscure the importance of uh, communication with God, which uh, uh, experiencing the presence of God already in this world, which was so important for early ascetic mystics and their subsequent um, followers who came to be known as Sufis. Did I answer your question? 
I believe so. Um, I would like to follow that up actually with a question about discourse, because I think one thing that I I find really interesting about this book is, is again, I mentioned this earlier, you really engage with this idea of imagine the fact that discourses and traditions can be imagined and and you um, tie discourse and tradition together. And I was wondering, what is your, what, what do you feel defines your particular approach to writing about discourses in this book in particular? Well, um, I already mentioned the Quran, and I thought, well, uh, I cannot describe discourses without uh, constantly referring to the Quran. And gradually I realized that basically the entire uh, textual tradition of Sufism, almost 90% of it, it's a running commentary on the Quran. So as a result, I decided, why don't I use the uh, Quran as the fulcrum of my own discourse about Sufism, how Sufis use the Quran to uh, get closer to God, to achieve proximity with God, uh, what uh, they found in the Quran, the techniques for achieving this proximity, that's for sure. The, the Quran all, often mentions that uh, its followers should remember God often, dhikr is used, yathkuruna. Um, so they said, why don't we use the, I, this idea of uh, uh, remembering God as a technique to achieving proximity or even unity with God? S- thus appeared the Sufi practice of dhikr. Not only they derived a concept, but they also put the concept into practice. An early Sufi, uh, Sahla Tustari, who died uh, at the very end of the uh, 9th century in Basra, he said that you should constantly uh, remember God wherever you go. It should You should make it uh, your internal uh, practice. In other words, you are in this world, but you constantly are uh, reciting uh, the name of God in your mind and until it becomes imprinted in your heart. So, uh, it's a Quranic notion, but uh, it was appro- when it was appropriated by Sufism, it became a Sufi practice and also one of the major foundations of Sufi theory. Um, in the same way, they found uh, the notion that there are individuals who are closer to God than others, uh, and they are called awliya, that is the friends or protégés of God, who are under God's protection, and they took on board this idea and uh, arguing that, uh, yes, all Muslims are equal in principle, but some are spiritually cleaner and purer than others, and uh, eventually they achieve closeness to God that is unattainable to people who are immersed in mundane matters, who only care about uh, the here and now. And uh, in this way, they also found uh, in the Quran a category to describe themselves. They are friends of God or saints, quote unquote. So um, they, um, I would say, plumbed the depths of the Quranic discourse for the ideas that resonated with their own spiritual um, experiences, with their own uh, vision of the universe, and with their own vision of the role of human being in this life and in this cosmos. 
So that's how there appeared so many <laughs> uh, Sufi commentaries on the Quran. But eventually they also uh, came to construct a, a comprehensive uh, picture of the universe based on this selective uh, uh, targeted real reading of the Quran. Some passages worked for them better than others, so they became their staple. Uh, and the story, for instance, of Moses and the unnamed um, servant of God who was later identified with Khadr is paradigmatic. Even the prophet who is uh, privy to the uh, normative wisdom, to external pro prophethood, to the external law, is unable to understand God's wisdom uh, that is uh, embodied and manifested by his companion Al-Khadr or Khidr. So that uh, was this. That story really was uh, a great boon for the Sufi tradition. It allowed them to um, to show that uh, one should focus on the external, uh, not on the external, sorry, but on the internal aspect of the revelation, on the kernel rather than husks. Thank you. What I really enjoy about the way even you're speaking now of the word tradition, and, and then again how it sort of appears in the book is you're making this implicit argument about the fact that um, tradition is really this living thing and it builds upon layers and layers and layers of discourse. And again, just a another thing I really enjoyed about the book. So one thing that sort of, I guess, defines tradition and discourse and, I mean, intellectual groups in themselves or, or ideological movements is inclusion and exclusion. And again, you mentioned at some point in the book that you err towards inclusion versus exclusion. So I'm going to ask you a very basic question. If something calls itself a Sufi, it being an idea, a thinker, a movement, is it a Sufi? And I suppose a lot of the undercurrent of this question is this long conversation we've been having in Islamic studies for, you know, as long as Islamic studies has been around, sort of on the, the, the lines of Shahab Ahmad and Talal Assad, sort of what is, what is a Muslim, what is Islam, what is Islamic, which runs parallel to this question of what is a Sufi, yeah, I actually reviewed Shahab Ahmed's book for the Princeton uh, publishers, uh, so I know it pretty well, and I admire his erudition. He's one of the most erudite scholars I've ever read. Uh, in my field, uh, he uh, encompasses so much... Uh, uh, huge chunks of uh, Islamic civilization, which he calls uh, the Balkans to Bengal. This particular uh, part of the Islamic civilization is the focus of his study. Uh, yes, and what the importance of being Islamic, uh, who can be called Muslims, who cannot be called Muslims. He says that everything that practically happened in the Muslim world was Islamic. Because uh, even uh, things that were not Islamic, Christianity and Judaism, they were also part of the Islamic civilization because it uh, was taking place within the parameters of the Islamic state and, uh, um, and it was also um, a response to certain no, common challenges but faced by Christ Christians, uh, Muslims, Jews, um, in the same time, so and I think his his vision is uh, wonderful. But uh, what happens uh, to Sufis uh, to Sufis themselves? How whether they are willing or unwilling to identify themselves as Sufis? Uh, it it's a more complex question. 
If, for instance, in the Middle Ages, Ibn Taymiyyah uh, condemns certain manifestations of Sufism as illegitimate uh, from the viewpoint of the Sharia, he is incarcerated, uh, put in prison <laughs> by the individuals who disagree with him, uh, indicating that Sufism was the predominant uh, idiom religious idiom and affiliation in his time. Very few people in the Middle Ages dared to criticize Sufism. Yes, you could criticize certain aspects of Sufism, excessive fascination with the cult of saints, or uh, ecstatic practices, or uh, exaggerated claims uh, about knowledge of the future, about the occult knowledge, and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, uh, to reject Sufism altogether, no one dared, in my view at least. But with the arrival of what we call modernity, which is a very charged and pregnant uh, term and also very controversial, something happens um, uh, both within Sufism and outside Sufism, as a result of which uh, the word Sufi acquires at, at a certain stage, in, especially in the uh, first half of the 20th century, uh, derogatory connotations. And um, even in the second half of the 20th century and even today, there are people who are acting uh, and thinking like Sufis, but they who, who do not want to be seen as such by outsiders. What, what it means is that the uh, discourse of their critics has become so pervasive and so powerful that they sometimes have to disguise their Sufi views by calling their practices taskiyah to nafs, for instance, the purification of the soul, and saying, no, we're not Sufis, we're simply practicing the purification of the soul, which no Muslim would argue against, of course, uh, but it indicates the pervasiveness and power of the Salafi discourse, and Salafis are the primary oppon opponents of Sufis, uh, but not alone. There are also um, westernized uh, Muslims who think that uh, Sufism is, is a bunch of superstition that has no place in um, in contemporary world, and it is not conducive to an active uh, uh, lifestyle and active stance in a society that is needed for contemporary age. So, yes, Sufism could be become a bad name, and then people try to avoid it. I also, uh, and, and try to avoid to be called Sufis. Uh, the same happens in, uh, in the Shi environment, where many um, individuals who act like Sufis, who engage in Sufi practices, prefer not to be called Sufis, but prefer to be called followers of Irfan, that is the metaphysical um, higher wisdom, uh, Hikmah, Muta'aliya, whatever. But they try to avoid the term Sufis for, for, for specifically for uh, due to the fact that it was used by Sunnis uh, to describe certain practices um, and, uh, and certain lifestyles. So they uh, do not want to adopt a Sufi practice and theory, so they 
forged their own, they uh, uh, mint their own term, Irfan, Hikmah, um, to describe uh, what actually is a Sufi practices and, uh, and actions and thoughts. I would just like to point out that actually, especially as we're speaking so much for the contemporary right now, you actually close the book with this beautiful chapter on um, titled Sufism's Recent Trajectories. And one thing that I think would be interesting, um, simply because you mentioned different points in the book to bring out, is the relationship between Sufism and Salafism in the modern day, in the contemporary. Yes, yeah, it's, I think, uh, wherever you go today, uh, you, you see this rift. Um, it can be more severe, less severe, but you see it everywhere, including the American Muslim communities, where um, the constituencies are divided over the place of Sufism in the life of their societies and uh, over the directions of Islam today. So uh, this uh, uh, division, I would not say fascinated me, but since I found it wherever I went, I decided to address it. And I then I realized that behind this uh, very uh, overarching uh, disagreement, we find a, a, a host, a, a myriad of little factors that uh, contribute to this uh, confrontation between the follower, the opponents of Sufism and the followers of Sufism, the Sufis and their detractors. And this um, confrontation very often uh, has deeper Mm, roots. It has economic roots, it has social aspects, and also uh, very often associated with uh, different political agendas. Um, there is also a very important age factor. The younger people tend to uh, have te in the societies that I studied in particular, that is the societies of South Russia, the North Caucasus, and also in Hadramaut, uh, which is a province in present-day Yemeni Republic, uh, that younger people tend to embrace Salafi Islam and use it uh, to criticize, uh, use its precepts to criticize Sufism. Um, so there is this uh, uh, generational uh, element that I discovered uh, when younger people want to escape the uh, the sway of the local traditions of the local customs, uh, and if uh, but if when they don't have a viable uh, interpretation, religious interpretation um, of Islam, then uh, they are powerless or they are less effective. But if they find uh, an interpretation of Islam that uh, appeals to them and then they can use to dislodge the old authorities of their societies, the old power structures of their societies, or at least if not dislodge them, to challenge them. So uh, the Salafism provides a powerful idiom of protest in societies uh, that still have uh, traditional structures in place and very uh, still effective and sometimes uh, oppressive.
Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Before I let you go, I was wondering if I could ask, what are you working on right now? Do you have any future projects planned? Yes, I I already mentioned the North Caucasus. The new project uh, will not deal with Sufism. Uh, for the time being, I would like to just to become an historian, a long-durée historian of the Caucasus. I personally, I come from the Caucasus. I'm ethnic Russian who lived in the territories that were um, originally Muslims, and there are still many Muslims there. Um, It's uh, South Russia, the Northern Caucasus, the Kuban steppes. And I would like to write uh, about uh, the conquest of that area by the Russian Empire in the early 20th century, the local resistance which usually took Islamic forms because uh, Islam was the only ideology that could unify the fragmented uh, tribes uh, of mountaineers, the people who lived in the mountains who were Muslims. Uh, The only unifying ideology was Sharia, uh, and uh, that would force them to abandon their uh, customary laws and unite against the Russian encroachment on the region. Um, but then I, dis- I also would like to discuss contemporary recent conflicts in the area, uh, how uh, these conflicts uh, appeal to the events of the first Caucasus war between the Muslim, Muslims of the Caucasus, of the North Caucasus in particular, and uh, the Russian Empire. The book is called Islam and Empire in the Northern Caucasus. So I take a long durée view from the origins of the conflict in the Russian encroachment into the area to the uh, reaction of the local tribes and communities to this encroachment, which often took uh, Islamic forms. Uh, of jihad, especially, or creation of an Islamic state, imamate, um, and uh, uh, how this uh, conflict uh, uh, was replayed in the uh, late 20th century and at the beginning of the 21st century in contemporary uh, Russia, or let's call it its official title, the Russian Federation. That sounds like a really exciting project, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me today. Thank you, Nadira, for talking to me. Um, I hope my uh, readers will like the book, and uh, at least I invested in, in it my heart and soul. Oh, I think so. I think it's a, I mean, again, it's a really unique study and I'm very excited for it to get out there and for people to enjoy it and enjoy it for its methodological discussion, but also for the historical aspects that you bring up. Thank you. 